Welcome to Reframe and Reset Your Career, a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job, feeling stuck in your career, looking to change your perspective, or just rediscover your why. I'm your host, Harsha Borolesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development. In each episode, I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real-life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode. When we think about in, in behavioral science, we talk about the fast brain and the slow brain, and you're really reprogramming this fast brain, which is your automatic pilot, to identify that you now have different habits, and it soon becomes mechanical. And there's something you step over some behavioral science threshold, basically, and you've changed your narrative. But nonetheless, getting yourself out there and meeting people and asking them if they can help you, and I think you know. And I talk about this in the book, the behavioral science literature is pretty clear on the idea that actually when you ask for help, the chances of you being told yes are much higher than you actually um, expect them to be. Thank you so much for joining me today on episode six of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Grace Laudan. Hello, Grace. Hi, everybody. It's really nice um, to meet you today. And thank you so much for tuning into this podcast and giving us the privilege of your time. Thanks, Grace. So Grace is the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative and an an associate professor in behavioral science at the London School of Economics. The LSE was my old university, but Grace has had a far more impressive career than me. She is an economist by background and her research is focused on understanding why some individuals succeed over others because of factors beyond their control. Grace is also interested in using the techniques of behavioral science to design interventions for firms to promote good conduct, diversity and inclusion, and curb biases that creep into high-stakes decision-making. At the LSE, Grace trains executives in these approaches through her teaching on corporate behavior and decision-making. She will also soon be a published author of Think Big, which will be published on Thursday, the 25th of March. Welcome, Grace. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. I didn't know you were a student of LSE. What did you study? Uh, Economics with accounting and finance. Oh, wonderful. That's pretty traditional. Yeah, that's how I uh, know Dr. Power. I don't know him, but Mike Power is one of my teachers. Yes, yes. Yeah, unfortunately, my career, as I mentioned, was not as distinguished as yours. Um, But for some reason, I really enjoyed his class. It was auditing and accountability. And then uh, Michael Zander, have you ever come across him? Yes, I know who he is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was he was amazing. He did um, English legal systems, um, but and he seemed to be a great guy. But Grace, yeah, I just love your book. But it's also slightly depressed me as it's the book that I wanted to write. So. (laughs) So I've got Dory Clark writing Stand Out, and now you've done this to me. At least it was done by nice people. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. At least you're not cursing us under your breath. <laughs> I, I think with all this, it, the, the whole idea of this zero-sum game is really silly, and I think it's about sharing ideas, and, and everybody can win. It's like the a rising tide lifts up all boats. And I think if you have that mentality rather than 
you know, sharp elbows, I think you get much more out of it. Um, don't you think so? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that has allowed me kind of move relatively quickly in my career has been um, an idea that when you are a researcher, you should have the generous spirit. So you share ideas with other people and they reciprocate. And um, I, I, exactly what you said is true, that you, that you get this rising tide that goes on to lift all boats. Excellent. And, and Grace, do you have a quote that you'd like to share uh, with the listeners today? So I, you know, I kind of thought about this because you, you, you said that you were going to ask me. And I think one of the quotes in the book is, uh, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. And I think that really kind of runs core to what Think Big is trying to do. So Think Big as a book is really trying to get you to think big, obviously, and then commit to these small steps that will get you closer to the future that you want. And that's the preparation part of that statement. And then what Think Big also does is really get you to kind of rethink what luck actually means in the sense that, you know, you can create networks that will create opportunities for you. And very often the label of luck that's given through career journeys, because I might say to you today, oh, I got really lucky at this moment in my, in, in, in my life. But if you say, can you recollect what actually brought about that luck? You can trace it back to developing networks that gave that opportunity to me. So I think, you know, for listeners, really focus on preparation through following the Think Big, Take Small Steps roadmap, and then also focus on building opportunities through generating your network. And then you'll find yourself getting more lucky. That, that's a great quote to share with us. But, but before we dive into your career and stuff, how is uh, Casey your bulldog? She's good. She's probably not very happy at the moment because she's sleeping in the other room. She's normally with me, but she snores really loudly. And my students suffer through it sometimes in my lectures where I, I, she looks too comfy and I don't move her now that we're virtual. But I talk for a podcast, having a snore in the background might be too hard. <laughs> and, and, and does she prefer economics or computer science? Oh, I think Casey probably prefers psychology, to be honest. <laughs> I do think she uses psychological warfare to get extra treatment a day. <laughs> Excellent. Um, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, would you mind telling us about your early life? And, this, and I especially love the way your mum was so encouraging when you were at school. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think kind of anyone who reads the book will learn quickly that I'm, I wasn't somebody who was expected by my teachers in school to achieve great things. And I actually think that my teachers uh, in school would have uh, at some point um, been quite surprised that I even went to university. I, there, there was really this kind of big question mark over it. And kind of when I reflect on that, it's easy to say, you know, the teachers kind of discounted me. But as a, a young person, and even today as an adult, I do tend to get very distracted. So whatever is in front of me is what has my attention. And that can be very, very fleeting, moving me across projects, which does cause dismay to my co-authors from time to time. But that's a different, that's a different story. But I think one of the things that my mom really wanted for me was for me to go to university. Um, you know, I come from a working class background, a small town in Cork, and it wasn't necessarily a given that I would go to university. And she really was cognizant of the opportunities that having an education can open up for you. Because obviously you can take everything away from a person, but you can't take their education, right? Um, it's something that Manoush uh, Shafik, actually our, our director, likes to say. And she put in place, I think, structures that now as an adult, when I look back, really mirror the kind of carrots and sticks methodology that behavioral scientists know so well. So if you're doing something that actually has these payoffs that are very, very far in the future, one of the ways to get people to actually do it is to um, change their costs and benefits today. And she did that for me. So really she um, used saliency, so really helped me get timetables up on the, on, on the wall so I knew what I was going to be doing when I was studying. 
She also used a lot of carrots in the form of treats, you know, from kind of things like marshmallows and video nights to, you know, my favorite stationery to even some vouchers for shops sometimes. And also, I think, you know, if, if you if there's any Irish listeners and if you have an Irish mammy, you'll know that when she's annoyed at you, you can see it actually in her eyes. Um, and that sometimes could be enough to, to avoid that look. It could have been enough to get me at, at, at the desk. And, and I think, you know, it felt tedious at the time. I, you know, I definitely couldn't declare that I was the happiest moments of my life when I was studying for these exams that I did. But it was what I actually needed to open doors to kind of get me um, opportunities that now I've been basically able to kind of find a job that I really, really love. And if I think about the kind of the emphasis on happiness in the world today, I think we really need to think about what are we aiming for when we talk about happiness? Are we aiming for happiness in the moment? In that case, we should be doing things that kind of gratify us in the day and not really planning for the future. Or are we trying to smooth our happiness over our life course so we don't end up, you know, um, miserable? Um, when we don't have opportunities and things aren't working out so well for us. And I think that carrots and sticks methodology, as you know, behavioral scientists know, is really a way to get that smoothing. It allows us to kind of take things that are happening right now, increase their benefits, increase their costs to mean that we'll take an action that would allow us to have some great things happen in the future. And, and it's really interesting you talk about the hard work and the grind, because I think sometimes without the grind, you don't get the payoff. Um, And there's a really interesting lecture I went to by uh, Professor Vincent Walsh of UCL. And he just talks about how these people who've come up with amazing creativity, they're not geniuses, but they just love their subject, you know, Einstein and and various people. And they're looking at it in different ways. And sometimes it's when you're doing the grind and then you go offline, that's when those moments of genius come to you, like sort of, you know, rain from the sky or something. It's just effortless. Um, So, yeah, I find that hard work. Once you actually get into it, it's it's really rewarding uh, eventually. But- and just like exercise, you start enjoying it, right? So I think, you know, if you if you start a new process, so as humans, because ego is such an important part of our identity, we just mechanically don't like being in a place where we don't understand what's going on 100% or where we feel people are smarter than us and we can't follow their conversation. But the economics literature and the behavioral science literature tells us clearly that if you want to increase your ability, You want to be around people who are smarter than you. So you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. It's actually a waste of your time to be the smartest person, smartest person in the room. And I think if we can kind of overcome this ego setting, what you just described will actually um, will follow much more, um, will follow much more readily than it naturally tends to do for us as humans. Oh, totally. And and what I really like about your story, Grace, and which I didn't realize before, is that you don't have this very linear career. these things almost sort of happen to you in a way. And I think that's really interesting for our listeners out there because, yeah, there's a lot of fear with COVID. People don't know what's happening in, in their careers. Um, and you know, you didn't have everything mapped out. And I quite like the fact that you switched from computer science to economics, which isn't the, I, I mean, they're both totally tough things. But yeah, how did, how did that come about? I mean, that's an interesting switch. Yeah, no, I mean, I, so I think one of the things when we're kind of planning for our future, I, I really endorse aiming for something, but I think people shouldn't be afraid to change. And I think that's really what happened with me with computer science. You know, there was a, a time in my life where I was really excited about going into computer science. And then the actual study and the grind of it, it really wasn't for me. So I was very lucky, actually, at that particular piece in time that by chance, and I use that that word intentionally, so, you know, kind of luckily that I met somebody who was the head of the economics department in my local university who pointed me towards a master's degree. But of course, how I kind of said in the beginning, 
you know, once you really examine Locke, it's not really Locke. I only knew him through a job that I happened to be working for the vice president of the university anyway. So I happened to kind of be in a network that left me open to actually meet him in the first place. And I think, you know, one of the things that I try to do and think big is to get people to move away from labels when they're choosing a career like I did. So I wanted to, to be a computer scientist and I didn't really have a good idea about what actually a computer scientist would do day to day. So I want people to move away from that and I want them to move towards a more um, kind of activities based choice system. So what that actually means is identifying the activities that you enjoy doing or that you know you will enjoy doing identifying the skills that would allow you to do those activities actually with a level of expertise and with a level of professionalism that you don't have anyway, and then figure out what are the jobs that allow me to do these activities and use these skills. And if you do it that way, we'll have a lot, a lot less mismatching in, in careers, but still it is always worth keeping an eye open for these kind of other opportunities that come your way and be willing to change. But had I not embarked on becoming a computer scientist, I would never have been an economist. So kind of having that aim is really important, even if, as you say, sometimes you go squiggly and veer off course. But but, but it's, it's interesting. You have to have that North Star, which you're aiming for. And even if you don't quite get there, then but you're, you're carrying on the journey. And it's about having the self-awareness to think, OK, this seems interesting. Why don't I go off in this direction? Absolutely. And I think taking the approach to careers of identifying activities and then identifying skills that would allow you to do them also allows you to be much more nimble when shocks like COVID come along and you know the industrial revolution is now shaping the type of work that's available to us because you don't see yourself as one occupation you don't see yourself as having one role you see yourself as being defined by things that you like doing and skills that you have to allow you to do them and that makes you automatically much more mentally able to think about transferring those skills into other occupations. And I also really like that anecdote you mentioned about there was a professor negativity who you spoke to. Um, maybe you'd like to elaborate on that? Yeah. So, I mean, when I arrived at the LSE, it was um, 2011. Um, and I remember I was a lecturer and I remember wanting to become um, a senior lecturer and asking um, a, a professor who was in my network, who I really, really admired, um, his advice. and. You know, he actually said to me, you know, I don't think you'll make it there. And I, and, you know, I think it would be five years. And even then, I'm not really convinced that you'll actually make it there. And I think the interesting thing about this is when he said that, it really became a self-fulfilling prophecy for me because it was somebody who, who I saw as a mentor. It was somebody who had kind of good credentials in the area that I was studying in. And I think I lived down to the expectations then. So my research kind of slid. So if I actually look at that period, it's really, really clear that I didn't, wasn't really kind of, you know, kind of keeping an eye on what I, what, what I should be doing. And then it came to me in this realization that he was wrong. And I, and I don't know why I kind of hadn't thought about it before. It seems really stupid now in hindsight, but I'm really somebody who values other people's opinions. So what I did was I found three other people to talk to about this. And they didn't know each other, which is really important. So they're independent. So they, they didn't kind of have a story that they could pass to each other about me. And the three of them all were much more positive about my career outlooks. And I never looked back once I met those three mentors, actually. And I think that's kind of the advice that I would give somebody if someone has told them that they're not necessarily doing, doing well. There's either two kind of answers to that. Maybe you, you aren't. Maybe you need to up your game and kind of get better skills. And that's fine. That's, you know, that's life. That happens in life. But the second is maybe you've met somebody who has biases, who has blind spots, who isn't good at assessing skills, talents and ability and is good at assessing, you know, a person's gender and their race and their background. And 
and whether or not they seem like somebody who traditionally fits the mold. And the best way to kind of get out of really internalizing those words is to talk to other people. Um, and ideally more than one. And I, and I say kind of a rule of three in the book, because I think it's kind of, you know, we say in statistics, three is a trend. So I think then you kind of know for sure that what you're, you're not discounting advice that you should be heeding to, but you just got back. I mean, and that, that was a case of bad luck, actually, that I, you know, and even even still, when I look back, uh, extraordinarily nice person, but definitely wasn't the person who should be advising my career. And I think the tip is that choose your mentors a bit more carefully. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and the second is diversity of mentorship. Yes. So no, pick no. people who are really kind of, you know, diverse in prospects, because that what will happen is if you have a diverse mentor kind of set, you will get outliers where one of them will get things wrong. But the majority will hopefully always point in the right direction. But uh, turning to your book, I, I love the way you split it into these six um, sort of key areas to change gears. So you've got goal, time, inside, outside, environment, and resilience. So if we start with um, goal to begin with, you know, I really like this idea of the narratives that hold you back and the narrative that we tell ourselves. And, and especially I liked the, the story when you, were, you have a fear of needles. Um, would you like to expand on that, Grace? always in my childhood I had a fear of needles um, and this was something actually that was really troublesome for me so you know when I got my my measles mumps and rubella injection I actually fainted and, and, and you know went in an ambulance to the hospital um, so really serious you know really serious stuff to the point when I used to get blood tests uh, people would come with me and I'm ashamed to say actually people still come with me so I, so I think that I, I think you know um, I have not I have now grown that in, in some ways and I remember even being um, uh, 25 years of age and the, a nurse calling my dad to come in and sit with me when I was getting a blood test because I wanted him to come in. So I sent her out. I was giving her quite a hard time. I didn't want to put, get the needle in my arm. And there was a nun sitting next to my dad in the in the waiting room. And, and, and she, she overheard the nurse saying, you know, your daughter really wants you to... Um, come in um, um, and the nurse the nun gave my said to my dad you know you're a terrible father how could you leave her in there on her own the poor mind you should go into her really visualizing this three-year-old four-year-old five-year-old kid who was left in their own and my dad just said you know she's 25 what was what, what was kind of cru- kind of a cruel twist of fate then is I ended up getting ty- diagnosed with type 1 diabetes so juvenile diabetes just when um, just when I turned turned 30 and when I was diagnosed, my partner, Kieran, was with me. And I said to the consultant at the time, you know, like, I'm not going to inject. So just tell me how long I can live. Because for me, the quality of life living, having to actually stick needles in myself would have been so bad. And I think for if there's ever any, um, if there's ever any evidence that somebody can change the narratives about themselves, for me, it's my story about diabetes. So within a very short period of time, somebody who was, you know, falling on the floor, exhausted when they were getting a needle, avoiding blood tests, avoiding kind of routine injections, was able to inject themselves. And, you know, I appreciate my story isn't generalizable in the sense that it was actually a matter of life and death. But if people look around them, every day people change narratives about themselves. So, you know, how, how many smokers do you know who move from a narrative of I am a smoker to I, I no longer smoke. And how many people do you know who move from, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm overweight and don't exercise. Now I'm somebody who runs 5K every week and I, and I eat healthy. Or how many people do you know who move from a narrative, you know, I'm a workaholic to 
I am someone who leaves the phone by the in the hall and switches off completely. And I still have, I have time for my family. And I think if you're holding a narrative with your career that you're not able, that you don't have time, that you're not as good as the people in that, that you'll never be accepted. I would really love people to challenge those narratives and kind of put in places these steps that actually allow you to become somebody who is the opposite of what you might actually think at the moment or who becomes the person that you identify as the person that you want to be in your future self, but there's something holding you back and it's just this psychological narrative that you can't get rid of. And, and I think that's really interesting, the whole idea of firstly understanding what your narrative is and then trying to change it. Is that right, Grace? It's absolutely right. And, you know, sometimes you, you don't even need to have a full understanding of the narrative, only that you need to identify kind of some of these words that you're using to hold yourself back. You know, I'm too lazy. I don't have time. I'm not good enough. And then putting processes in place to prove to yourself, putting these little steps in place to prove to yourself that actually you are able, you do have time, you are good enough. And, you know, I kind of say, if you repeat these steps and you engage in these activities, you know, you're, you're on your tippy toes. I'm not asking you to do anything extreme in this book. This book is really for people who want to kind of keep their comfort blanket on a little bit, who don't want to step too far outside their comfort zone. But if you do these small steps little bit by little bit, when we think about in, in behavioral science, we talk about the fast brain and the slow brain. And you're really reprogramming this fast brain, which is your automatic pilot to identify that you now have different habits and it soon becomes mechanical. And there's something, you step over some behavioral science threshold basically, and you've changed your narrative. It's quite funny because I used to be quite technophobic uh, until about three or four years ago. And I think I was telling you this, I had a, one of these really old Nokias, not the really old ones. And I only got a smartphone about four years ago and I was so technophobic, but then I became friends with some people who are very interested in technology. And you know, three years later, I'm doing a podcast and designing an app. And I just would never have believed that before. So it's sometimes challenging these things and, and pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. And I think as well, you know, if you are somebody who, you know, feel has imposter syndrome or somebody who just thinks that they can't actually do with you, I will tell you that I've met some like really successful people who are the head of companies, who are the head of countries, who are the head of NGOs, and actually they are pretty normal people. So they are people who put in effort every single day to work on something. There's no doubt that they have high ability, but it is this process. So it basically is kind of making sure that you show up for yourself and kind of aim for something um, in the future that as well that you know that you enjoy doing and that you're happy to put in the time and effort to get you there. Brilliant. So if we move on to time, which I'm completely fascinated by, and especially this whole idea that it's a resource which you just can't get back. It's only going in one direction. And I especially like the films of Christopher Nolan. Uh, he's always obsessed by time. But um, how do you make time work for you rather than, rather than against you? Well, I think the first thing is that, you know, we all feel so busy all of the time. Um, and usually when I'm speaking, and I think I remember to do it at the start of this podcast, I thank people for the privilege of their time, really recognizing that it is this kind of this scarce resource. And I think because it is so busy, we need, and we feel, I think because we feel so busy, we need to take steps to really kind of get real with ourselves about what we're spending our time on. And there's kind of two things that I'm really interested in. So the first are these things that actually cause us instant gratification, but don't really give us anything for the future. So they're, they're not an investment in any kind. So kind of watching the TV, which I love, you know, going out and, and you know, and, and meeting people. Um, which which I also love doing, 
So you have really good fun in the moment, but there isn't really anything, any payoff in the future. And for those, I really want people to kind of get mindful about, can I take a small bit of time away from those to put towards my big thinking goal? And I'm talking 90 minutes. I'm not, I'm not talking about a, a very long period of time. And then there's other set of activities that actually we seem to engage in as people, but they give us nothing. So they don't add any value to us in the instant moment. They don't add any value in the future. And actually they have negative impacts on us. And some of the things that I've identified in the books are pointless meetings. And the second is kind of emailing all of the time, being on call for email, really kind of auditing your week. What are you spending your time on? And then looking back and identifying things that are time sinkers. Are you spending too much time watching the TV? Are you spending too much time engaged in activities that have no payoffs, like these pointless meetings? Are you spending too much time kind of surfing mindlessly on Facebook, Instagram, you know, Twitter, whatever is the thing that you actually enjoy doing? And making a conscious effort to say, I'm going to take out a certain period of time from that, and I'm going to now spend that in my in, in my big thinking career. And I think if you look at time that way, you will firstly find 90 minutes at least to work towards your big thinking goal. But I think secondly, it makes you really mindful that you actually do have time to invest a small amount in to do some extraordinary things for yourself in the future. And one of the things that I try to do in the book, and I I hope I achieved it, is really to kind of get people to visualize their idea of me plus, which is their future self, in a way that they actually have empathy for the person. The same way that I would have empathy for you today, because you're a real person in front of you. So to kind of do that visualization, which allows you to bring your future self forward. And then when you're not showing up for yourself, when you're watching too much TV, when you're sitting in pointless meetings, when you're mindlessly surfing the internet, there's an opportunity cost because you're letting that future self down. And, and I think um, uh, Kelly McGonigal, um, the psychologist, she talks about almost writing a letter from your future self to yourself, which is actually quite an interesting thing, saying thanks for taking that half an hour a week to do this activity and, and doing those small incremental steps so half an hour a day, so three and a half, four hours a week over years, that really builds up and it builds up quickly. And it, it and I think with a lot of activities, it's that that taking off is hard, but once you're up, it's much easier to maintain it, like going to the gym or learning any sort of activity, it just becomes a a lot easier, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think that's a great analogy. You know, so most people who are listening today wouldn't think twice if someone said to them, when you're thinking about your health, when you're thinking about eating well, and when you're thinking about exercising, that's something that you have to do for life. So don't go on a crash diet, invest in it for life, baby steps, baby steps. If you need to lose weight, lose weight slowly. And it's exactly the same thing here. The way the world of work has changed, we're now in a situation where you're going to need to be continuously learning, particularly if you're in a professional career, for literally the rest of your life. So the, kind of the, the, the trends are moving, moving so quickly. And it's much easier if that continuous learning is A, embedded as a habit, and B, isn't costly. So you shouldn't be paying like, you know, and I, and I work for a university, so I apologize, but you don't need to be paying tens of thousands of pounds to keep yourself, you know, to constantly continue with education. There's so much good content out there, out, out there on the internet. So I think making that work for you is really, really important and embedding it as a habit and keeping it low cost. And, and especially if you like those activities, it's so much easier to put the hours in if you enjoy what you're doing. I agree. And I think, you know, just to kind of manage expectations of people who might be listening, I think the activities that will have a learning curve. So the start of it might not necessarily be pleasant and, and really sticking with it 
safe in the knowledge that, as you say, once this is embedded as a habit, once you get a bit of experience under your belt, everything gets easier. You know, I'm somebody who learned how to um, uh, kind of price derivatives much later in life than people normally do. And when I was sitting in those classes as a lecturer already at the LSE, in classes with real students at the LSE, there were so many of them around me who were much better at it than me in the beginning. But again, it's something where the scales fall from your eyes at different rates. And I was able to do it just as good as anybody else in the end. And I say this to my students all the time. You know, I teach econometrics at the LSE. And when I teach econometrics, so many people anticipate the failure of econometrics in a way that's actually really real for them, that it holds them back. And I, I just kind of say, if you have to have, you know, you're not going to know this straight away. The learning curve is steep. But the beauty of a steep learning curve is that when you get to the top, it really is all flat. You feel very comfortable then in, in kind of in discussing things and in applying things and afraid, not afraid to ask questions. And most important, not afraid to say, I don't know. It's funny, Grace, when you mention econometrics, that freaks me out. <laughs> <laughs> you should come back. You should, you should let me teach you. I, I, it, it, it's something that I pride myself on of teaching people <laughs> econometrics who have no statistical knowledge. <laughs> When I, when I work with derivatives, I never priced them. I, I was more of a structurer, but but it's really interesting to understand how they sort of fit together. But anyway, let, let's move on <laughs> from my nightmares. Um, but getting on to emotions, I really like that whole idea of not making decisions when you're um, sort of overly emotional, because I, I think generally you have to be fairly balanced, I think, without... Um, getting too upset? You know, I mean, I, I'm a consumer of this um, psychological literature that shows quite clearly that when we have different emotions and, you know, ranging from when you're feeling negative towards something, when you're feeling angry to when you're feeling hungry, that you actually make, you know, better and worse decisions depending on the direction in which the in, in, in which the emotion is going. And, you know, you really want to be on neutral zone. So you don't want to have, you don't want to be too up when you're making decisions and you don't want to be too down when you're making decisions. And one of the things I talk about in the book is the affect heuristic from Paul Slovak that really tells us that actually when you're in this emotional state and we they, they mostly talk about negative emotions. But I think it's also true if you're in this kind of heightened state of excitement. But when you're in this um, emotional state, one of the best things that you can do for yourself is to give yourself a time out before making um, before making a decision. And I think this is particularly true when you have what's known as one door decisions to use the kind of the new terminology of Jeff Bezos in his book, where once you actually make the decision, there isn't an easy way to turn back. Or when you make the decision, you're going to have spent a lot of money, so then it's going to be emotional for you to sink the cost and really giving yourself time to pause. And I'm, at the moment, I'm working with some companies in technology, actually. And when I when I talk to them about emotional decision-making, I always kind of get, you know, we're in a speedy industry. How long do we have to wait? What is the time? And I think that's a really, really great question. And it doesn't need to be days, doesn't need to be months. For some of it, it really is just about putting an hour between you and the decision. So that kind of that kind of feeling of emotion, that kind of feeling of fizziness goes away. And I can predict a world in like 20 years time where, and they're already doing this in hedge funds, right? Where people are wearing devices that actually tell you what your physiological response is to something. And I predict a world in 20 years time where, where we know much more about how our emotions connect to this kind of physiological responses in our body. And where we're wearing devices and I can look at my Apple Watch and say, I, I need an hour. I need to go take a coffee, relax. Or I, or, or I, I look at my watch and I can say, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. I can make a decision. But I think until that time happens, we as people need to build a self-awareness. If you get an email that you don't like, take an hour to reply to it. If you get a call and it's from somebody who's demanding a decision, Maybe put an hour between yourself and that call, even if it makes you ringing out. Not if you're a heart surgeon, you should answer. 
everyone else, everyone else, you know, can take an hour. And I, 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 I really believe in this. And for me, with my own self, when I apply it to myself, the, t- the size of the time lag relates both to the height of the emotion and the size of the decision. And I like to spend the time in timeouts where I won't actually be thinking about and where I won't actually be thinking about the negative event. And, you know, a lot of people will kind of talk about, you know, doing meditation when they feel stressed. And that doesn't work for me. I've, I've tried in various guises. But what does work for me is going for a walk. What does work for me, and you mentioned kind of Casey in the beginning, is spending some time with Casey in the park, really taking my mind out of it. And it, I think this really leverages the ideas that Danny Kahneman has put into behavioral science that nothing is as bad as you think when you're not thinking about it. If you can move yourself away from something when you're having um, an emotional reaction, I guarantee that you'll start making better decisions. I've had this debate about emotions and people always say, you know, look at Antonio Damasio, where he says, look at your emotions. There is this sort of debate. Sometimes you have to obviously think about your emotions and and people do say, look, sometimes that that is a an important indicator. But I, I suppose the conclusion I would say is that there is obviously some debate. Obviously, you need to make sure that you're not completely over emotional, but there is also a use for emotions. Absolutely. And I think kind of the building of the self-awareness as well that I kind of encourage in Think Big is figuring out when you're more and less likely to have a mess up and when you're more and less likely to actually need that time out. So your emotions are telling you something and they're useful. So the fact that you're having this kind of flood of negative emotion, like if you're if you're putting me under pressure today, maybe I have a flood of negative emotions because on my side, perhaps I'm risk averse and maybe that's unnecessary. Or maybe you're putting me on, under pressure today and that actually is a bad thing for me. And I think the time out allows you to disentangle between, am I, is it my perception or is it actually something negative that's actually going on? And I think over time, when you when you take that break or, or, or kind of when you tune into your emotions just before big decisions are made and how you're actually feeling about something, the building of self-awareness will let you know whether or not some emotions are actually green lights for going ahead, quite honestly. Maybe it's just natural that you get kind of these, you know, I don't know if you've heard about this in, in meditation, which is the one part of meditation that I like, this idea of the body barometer where you should get more in, t- in touch with how you're actually feeling, h- how, how you're feeling in, in, in your body. But I think this will differ from person to person. And individual differences is something to always, I think, remember in this type of work. And, I, and in Think Big, I really encourage people over and over again to treat themselves as an experiment. So I give these insights that we know have worked in certain circumstances, but I, I say, treat yourself as an experiment, evaluate whether it works. And you know what? If it doesn't work for you, then that's not the insight for you. Choose a different one. Brilliant. And and it's interesting you mentioned Kahneman there, because I suppose the next area of your book is insight, insight, where you talk about biases. And obviously, Daniel Kahneman in his you know, great book talks about system one and, and system two. Do you, would you like to give a, a very brief overview about that? So, you know, um, I, I always like to say when I'm giving a talk to non-behavioral scientists audience that if you take an economics 101 class, you learn that when people are making decisions, they weigh up costs, benefits and they assess risk. And they enter this decision in a very rational, deliberative mode. But if you are a behavioral scientist, you believe in two styles of thinking. The first is very fast. You're on autopilot. You're making these very, very snap decisions. The second, much more slow, much more deliberate. You know, you're really kind of t- you're, you're taking those moments. And then the kind of question is, does it mean that the slow system is unbiased? So once I once I once I'm making a deliberate decision making, does it mean that it's unbiased? And the answer is no. So it's kind of two things you need to watch out for when you're in your slow decision making mode. 
first, your emotions, which we've already spoken about. And second, the context in which you're actually making your decisions in. So if the context is, you know, very negative, very competitive, it can actually be that there's lots of different blind spots that will still affect you. And then you have this fast brain. And then the question is, can I ever actually make a good decision when I'm in my fast brain? And the answer is yes when you learn by doing. So, you know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the, the biases that we focused on as behavioral scientists fall away when you get to learn by doing. But of course, this doesn't help somebody who's trying to pick a big thinking goal because you don't get to learn by doing. We don't, unfortunately, which I would absolutely love a world, we don't get to try loads of different careers because I would try so many. I, 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 really, I would really enjoy walking, walking in other people's shoes. But we don't get to do that. And also, you know, we don't get to kind of choose a partner multiple times. So again, that's something that you want to choose carefully. So there's so many decisions that actually come up, that we come up against as human beings where we don't have this learning by doing. And here, I think the, the insights from behavioral science, science are really, really important. If, if you haven't read it, I think reading, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow for your listeners is a great recommendation of a book to read. The kind of It's the 101 for behavioral science and really goes much deeper into this kind of idea of system one and system two. Oh, brilliant. And, and I, li- I really like this idea of risk aversion, because I think sometimes if you're in a secure position, and I think you made this point in your book, it's much easier to take a risk. Whereas with some people, you know, I think you mentioned women and ethnic minorities, they're slightly more risk averse because maybe they see the, the way the world is and they think, should we really take a risk? But sometimes if you don't take a risk, and I think in your career, you've taken some fairly big risks, but they've turned out well, which I think is great. Well, thank you. I mean, I, I don't feel that I've ever taken huge risks, actually, I think, which is really interesting, because I think always there was this revolving door. And I think that's my advice for people who might be risk averse for good reason. So who might actually have privileges that other people have is don't go in all or nothing. And, and this is the problem with careers advice sometimes is that it really can feel like you either go for it or you don't. And there's nothing in between. And there's so much in between. So, you know, you mentioned Jory Clark at the beginning of this, who is a friend. And, and one thing that she talks about a lot is if you want to be an entrepreneur, you don't need to you know, sell your house and put all your money in. You can have a side hustle. You can have a fantastic business with just one person. You can do this without actually putting in any, you know, any money uh, into the equation. And I think kind of, you know, the analogy with Think Big is really what I'm asking people to do is to take a little bit out of their comfort zone. So they're not going to be getting, you're you're not going to have major changes unless you take some steps in some direction, but you don't need to be diving off a mountain. This is really about figuring out how you can engage in activities and how you can hone skills that will allow you to get the job you want in a way that's much more slower paced than other books that talk about kind of future building. So in a, in a sense, this book was written for the groups that you just described, people who don't necessarily have the privilege to take these huge risks. And if there's a, there are listeners who really kind of want to dive in and, and do something very extreme, there probably is actually a better book for you, I would say. <laughs> and, and I think it's interesting, that, you know, the side hustle. Uh, you can you know, create content, you can you know, start a podcast, write, start a YouTube channel. There's so many low-cost ways of actually creating content and getting the message out there. And actually without having a big company behind you, I, I like that whole sort of guerrilla marketing type thing, the word of mouth. So if actually the content is good, then you'll get people who'll say, oh yeah, this is good. I'll pass it on to a friend, which I think is is the best form of marketing. And you know, I level with you. You know, I, I, I set up the inclusion initiative, the LSE, because I'm very cognizant of the fact that there are people who are, are, are being judged 
based on characteristics that have nothing to do with their skills, talents, and abilities. So based on gender, based on sexual orientation, based on race, based on ethnicity, based on whether they're neurotypical or not. And I think, you know, something has to be done about them. But I think the one thing to kind of bear in mind is all of those things are real and the world does need to become much more progressive. And I think we're kind of pointing in the right direction. But there's always things that are within your own control. And, and we haven't moved on to it yet, which I know when we talk about outside that we will. But all of these other biases that might actually be holding you back from other people. I've tried to really speak to those inside the book and and, and, and the best things that, that people can do. So I hope it will be enough to kind of allow, you know, diverse voices who don't necessarily take shots at particular types of careers to really kind of figure out that they don't need to go all in. It can be done slowly. But actually, I think the world really needs them in those careers. So not even just for them as an individual. I think that we really need different perspectives in careers where we don't have representation from some of those groups that I've that, that, that I've just mentioned. I think I think we I think the world will be much better off when that happens. T- t- totally. And actually that's a good segue into outside, obviously looking at biases. And I totally agree with your point, Grace, because it's about having different perspectives in the room. If everybody has a very similar background, it's just groupthink. Whereas if you have the different voices, you'll have you know, great outcomes. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, again, if you kind of come back to this kind of power of ego, as humans, we want to be around people who are like, we want to talk about things that we're actually very knowledgeable about. We want to be in agreement. You know, there's reasons in the US why Republicans and Democrats don't necessarily talk to each other. And there's rules at the table that you don't talk about politics. There's reasons here in the UK when around Brexit time, people didn't want to talk about Brexit at family tables because it was just so divisive. But if you think about what that actually means for companies, or if you think about what it actually means for innovation, it's really depressing because we get to innovate and we get to better places when we allow ideas to actually collide. You know, one of the one of the kind of concepts that I'm really interested in at the moment is, is an idea of psychological safety and how you actually kind of how you bring people to feel psychologically safe with their with their work being criticized without taking it personally. And I think again, you know, if you kind of think about making the world a better place, that's the type of utopia what, what we would have. You would have these diverse voices who are sitting together, who are bringing their hidden information, not shared information, but hidden information to the table, debating ferociously and ending up with these kind of, you know, trailblazing ideas that we haven't seen enough of actually in the last decade. I think if, if there's an under, underlying goodwill in a relationship, then you know, people can talk to each other and give criticism. But I think where that's not there, you know, people will interpret it in, in a different way. So I think it's very important to, to have a good relationship between managers and colleagues and what have you. And I think, you know, managers need to really recognise that it's now their gift to have diverse voices around the table. You know, it's not a negative thing to have people actually disagree with them and to encourage dissent and to encourage that at a level where employees know they're safe if they disagree not only with each other but also with the manager themselves and again I'm hoping in the next decade that we see this kind of emergence away from this manager who's top down even away from this kind of humble leadership that's kind of growing up now this kind of kind of servant leadership style more towards somebody who brings people together in a way where they know that they can actually get into a discussion that feels you know feels like it has heart in it feels like it has some soul in it but everyone is safe in that discussion. No one's job is threatened. And actually, as a team, and some of this is the problem of incentives as well, as a team, if they perform well, then they will be rewarded. And maybe, you know, if I, if I go back to my economics roots and move away from the behavioral, maybe it is about putting incentives at the team level rather than at the individual. Totally. Um, we have two more uh, aspects of your book to cover 
environment and resilience. And I think with environment, there are some very quick wins you can create by changing the things around you. Do you just want to touch on that quickly, Grace? Yeah. So, I mean, in the environment chapter, I discussed two major things. So one, um, your digital environment, which really is about kind of getting real about how much time you're spending um, engaged in things like email, Snapchat, you know, whatever, whatever it is that you're engaged in. And most of us are engaged too much in at least one kind of way of interacting with people online. And the second then, which I really love, are these tweaks that we can make to our environment really easily without too much effort. They really are just one small step in order to allow you to work kind of better and faster. And I go through a few of these in the book, but some examples are really thinking about the color that's on your walls. So, you know, in behavioral science, they have discussed um, studies that talk about the differences between being surrounded by red versus being surrounded by blue. I talk about lighting. So really thinking about, you know, do I want to be creative? What if I do? Maybe I need dimmer light. And then also talking about actually, no, maybe I need brighter lights. What I'm trying to do is really concentrate hard on the task. And then also talking about, you know, adding some greenery to, to your room. And it sounds really, really simple. And that was intentionally so. But it's really kind of to allow people to get in this mindset, to allow them to kind of earmark a place, whether it's an office, if you're lucky, to a small nook in, in the corner of a room, or maybe it's even a, a, a table in a cafe that you have no ownership of, but that there's a, a place where you go that kind of has these environmental aspects that set you up for success in a way that you haven't actually given to yourself in the past. No, that, that that's great. And things like decluttering, I think you mentioned that in your book as well, just making sure it's clear and it's perfectly defined for you, the working environment. And then I suppose the, the last thing is uh, resilience, uh, which, which you know obviously I think is so key. It's just being able to keep working um, and persisting, because I think without that, n- nothing is achieved. Absolutely. So, you know, I, I wrote a chapter um, not about resilience that had to do with major life blows. You know, so I talk about in the book how my mom passed away and that was a, a huge blow to me. And even now when I think about it, it still feels like it still feels like a blow versus the type of everyday punches that you have to have as you go about daily lives. So maybe somebody doesn't answer your email fast enough. Maybe somebody is slightly rude to you in the corridor. You know, maybe you were at a meeting and somebody talked over you. Maybe you missed a train and because you missed a train, you missed an important meeting and now your boss is angry at you. So all of these kind of things that, uh, you know, many of us would allow ruin our day, ruin our week, possibly even still be talking about it after a month, really trying to get people firstly to kind of reassess what they define as a punch, but secondly, giving them tools that allow them both home resilience and also avoid depletion of reserves of of resilience when you have these kind of small incidences that happen during the day. And I I think it's it's important, the whole idea of just letting, moving on and letting things slide because so many people take these and take it really personally. And especially um, if you're looking for a job, which we'll sort of come on to later, the rejections, uh, and especially now, they they potentially can really pile up and that can be quite soul-destroying. No, absolutely. So I think it's about thinking about when something happens and there's a negative effect and you're holding anger or you're holding upset, identifying what is the good in that. So, you know, I, I talk about these kind of random occurrences that we have with strangers that really get us down. If I stay angry at that stranger when I have a negative event, you know, so it really doesn't help anybody. So the stranger isn't feeling it. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it in my body. I feel angry. I'm feeling it in my shoulders. I'm feeling it, you know, where, wherever it is you feel stressed at, that, 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 that's essentially where you're feeling it. And you are right. I think at the moment, particularly because of COVID-19, certain people are having such a, a hard time, you know, 
if we look at the unemployment rates for the the, uh, the under 25s, they're much higher than they were before COVID and they're much higher as compared to other groups. If we look at the employment rate specifically for uh, black people under the age of 25, they're much worse than white people. And really thinking about actually how do you keep going when you have these things that are happening? The job rejection is a great example because it, there is a chance if you're applying for a job now that you're, you're, you're getting rejected quite frequently. And how can you find learning in that? And how can you actually protect yourself so that you can actually keep going and get to the destination that you know is right for you? And also, I think you mentioned about comparing yourself to other people. That's a very dangerous game. And I always think just focus on your own race, run your own race, and that's the best thing. I talk about the kind of keeping up with the Joneses. And and one of the most interesting things in um, that comes out of the happiness economics literature for me is that our actual income doesn't have a huge imprint on our happiness. Our relative income, relative to the peer group who we're comparing ourselves to, does. And that is really weird. So kind of getting people to think about how do I measure progress? What does progress actually look like for me? And encouraging people to compare themselves to themselves last week and yesterday, and also think about how they're moving towards that big thinking goal that they would have set for themselves in chapter two. So, so Grace, you're not saying dump all your high achieving friends, are you? No, I think keep them wrapped. <laughs> keep your high achieving friends around only because you want to learn from them, but you shouldn't be comparing your progress to them. Um, so, you know, high achieving friends are absolutely perfect to help you on your basic journey for two reasons. Firstly, when you surround yourself with high achievers, you lift your game. Secondly, they probably have a good network, so you want to get up on that. But not to be comparing yourself to, because the problem is if you're somebody who does relative comparisons, and I, I've fallen into this trap myself at a couple of points in my life. If you're someone who does relative comparisons, there's always going to be somebody else who's doing better than you. So you, you're you never done keeping up with the Joneses. So keep the high achievers around, not for comparing yourself to, but for, for, from learning from them and actually also nobbling their network from time to time. And, and, <laughs> and just a quick shout out to Grace's network. She is not transactional in her networking. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'd like I like to think that I'm pretty generous um, and hopefully people in my network wouldn't agree with that. And actually what I try to do these days is, is pay things forward as well, because, you know, I, ha- I, I, I am lucky to be surrounded by a lot of generous colleagues who, although from time to time they do ask me for favours, don't necessarily um, need them to be paid back when they do me one. And, you know, my, my attitude to it is always about paying um, is, is, okay, this is somebody who can handle themselves, but there's somebody else coming up the track who looks like them or who looks like me or who looks like somebody else. So let, let, let's, let's give them a hand up and, and kind of pause for a moment when they come along. And, and obviously, thank you, Grace, for taking the time to appear on here. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm really <laughs> excited. And thank you for allowing me to talk about the book. It, it's super supportive and I, re- I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to hear what your listeners think about it. And and the, the sort of the final bit um, of our uh, of our podcast, because I think I really like to get it back to sort of practical steps, especially given now what's going on. If, if you were looking for a job now um, and you're thinking about some actionable, practical things that you could be doing, what, what, what would you suggest to our listeners? So I think there's two things. So I think it's really identify the activities that you want to do and the skills that are connected to them and take your step to engage in those activities and to hone the skills. And the second is really to get yourself out there. So it might be getting on Zooms so that you're actually safe, but nonetheless, getting yourself out there and meeting people and asking them if they can help you. And I think, you know, and I talk about this in the book, the behavioral science literature is pretty clear on the idea that actually 
when you ask for help, the chances of you being told yes are much higher than you actually um, expect them to be. And I also kind of give hints about how to ask for help in a way that actually makes it easier for somebody else. Because, you know, everyone is busy or feels busy. Perhaps they're engaged in too much TV watching. We don't know. But everyone feels busy. So the easiest way to kind of get around that is to frame your messaging in a way that makes it much easier for them and possibly even beneficial for, for them to, to lend you a hand. But I think the biggest thing is really identifying what you want to be doing and really trying to expand and really trying to expand your network. It's a great point. If you don't ask, you you you, you just don't know. But I, I think it's also important to ask in a nice way and not be too pushy. But if you make it, say, maybe here are two or three questions, would you mind answering these that you know, just frame it in a in a very easy sort of way, and I think you know we've we've all been in that situation where you're trying to advance, and I think people, especially now, if they're reasonable, they'll they'll help as as much as they can. Absolutely, and and you know you can just say, look, this is my situation. Is there any advice that you can give me to kind of push me on my way? And the advice you might get might be, I, I think you should connect with this group. I think you, you should connect with this other person. I think actually the best thing for you to do is to think about getting this particular signal. That will help you get more recognized and get into get get you to where you want to go. But I think also, you know, diversify in asking. And I don't mean diversity as in thinking about kind of gender, race, or any other um, type type of demographic. What I'm really thinking about is diversifying as in numbers. If you are somebody who just has a really poor network now, meeting a few people is really going to help you because they have exponential networks behind them. So I think I say in the book something like ask 10 people and expect to get um, our yes from one. And that's great. So don't kind of expect everybody to get back to you or everybody to give you their time. Recognize that you're, you're going to have to play a numbers game here if you really are starting from zero. But people will engage with you. From there, there will be opportunities that will come along. It might be on that day. So have a little bit of patience. Give it a week, give it a month. But opportunities will come along if you really diligently um, try to hone your network. And, and I think it's really just about playing the long game because put the effort in, but you need to put it in over time because I think too many f- things fail because people just don't put the effort and the time in. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and the reason is because people go too all in. So we're in, we're all or nothing. It's either happening or it's not. And moving away from that frame of mind, actually, I'm going to keep my status quo. I'm going to invest a little bit. It's not going to be all or nothing. I'm going to see if it pans out. I'm going to see if the direction is right. I'm going to meet some new people. I'm going to get their advice. And doing it in a much more slow um, slow way sets you up for success so much better than giving everything up and throwing yourself into the deep end in the beginning. And, and also, Grace, I think the point about uh, sort of controlling what you can control, I think if you look at your sort of job search process, there's a lot more there you can control in terms of having a process, treating it like a job, maybe creating content so you can uh, you know, connect with people on social media, um, having a schedule, um, just following up with people, keeping a spreadsheet, even if it is rejections, because yeah. sometimes it's you know, number 100 that you interview or whatever it is that will give you that, that bit of luck. Absolutely. And I think, you know, kind of figuring out what you can control and controlling it in a way that's positive for you. And otherwise, writing the uncertainty is probably the best response that we have at the moment. And this whole idea of expanding your network, I just think that that's so powerful because you just ne- never know who's going to help you out. And, and just on a personal level, you know, when I've been doing the podcast and, and getting feedback, there are people who I don't really know very well who've really championed it. 
And it's a whole idea. Sometimes don't think that there's one particular type of person who's going to help you. Sometimes you're creating these models in your mind, you know, these biased views of who will help you. And you, you just never know. That's great. Honestly, that's really great advice. It really is. Kind of think about your think about who you're who you're talking to much wider than the people who you're focused on at this moment in time. Actually could be that person, you know, guy or girl who's maybe slightly socially awkward or who's the person who, yeah, if you befriend them, they might give you, you know, an amazing push in your career. You just you just never know. And sometimes it's that person who looks like the connector who probably won't help you at all because they've got too too many connections. So yeah. it's almost ca- counterintuitive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, I, and again, this kind of comes down to diversification and, and kind of thinking beyond there's one person or there's one type of person towards really kind of widening your network in order to expand expand opportunities that are out there. Yeah, I, I'm definitely um, befriending more technology people <laughs> and podcasters. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Which is completely different from my normal uh, person who's a bit more sporty, but, you know, it's good. You know, you've got to, got to mix it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, f- I fully embrace that strategy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and a f- final thing, just to end, Grace, is there anybody you'd like to give a shout out to or... Yeah, you know, I would love to say hello to our um, uh, MSc in behavioral uh, science students who are there this year doing pretty much most of the content virtually at the at the London School of Economics and and really having a great attitude in doing so, you know, really embracing the experience despite it being very, very different to what they were expecting it to be. Um, and I really wish them luck um, once they finish the programme in, in both finding their first job and also building the future that they want. I think especially now you go into university think you're going to have that personal contact you'll build your network and yeah it's 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 really tough um so yeah you you definitely feel for those those people but grace um yeah i really do thank you for your time today it's been such a pleasure uh chatting with you um and really appreciate you giving our listeners some of your insights um and i look forward to a lesson on econometrics and pricing derivatives and thank you so much for the privilege of your time today and putting me on the podcast and also for any of the listeners who have tuned in do check out my website it is www.gracelordin.com please um, check out pink big it's available from the 25th of march in all major bookstores and and all uh, your contact information grace will be going on to the show notes and the various channels so don't worry we'll, we'll make sure everybody knows how to get hold of you and the, the other big the, <laughs> the other big thing that i'm into is marketing how to get the message out awesome well i really i really appreciate and i really appreciate the support thank, thank you very thank much you. take care bye. bye thank you so much for listening and staying to the end that was such an enjoyable interview if you would like to listen to more episodes then please consider subscribing to the podcast which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.